It's good to be with you this evening. Happy Father's Day. When you are asked to preach on love as a pastor, you're thinking of one of two things. One, um, I knew it. I knew that they knew how loving I was. And this is a great opportunity for me to share all that I know and experience in love. Or the second is, I guess I was voted the least loving pastor and needed this sermon the most. And while I hope it's not the latter, I can promise you it isn't the former either. I am not the most loving pastor there is. In actuality, this spirit of the spirit love is one that I am regularly convicted over. So I come to you tonight not as one who has mastered love by any means, but as one who is seeking to be more loving myself. And by God's grace, we have the word of God to turn to when the preacher is not the standard himself. Galatians 5.22 Now the fruit of the Spirit is love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that we are only able to love because you first loved us. So as we reflect tonight upon this fruit of the Spirit, love, we pray that you would set our hearts and our minds on Jesus Christ. Strengthen me this evening. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this evening we will look briefly at what love is. We will look briefly at what love is not. And then we will spend the remaining portion of our time talking about who to love and how to love. The world around us has much to say about love. Love is the great theme of many novels written, movies produced, songs sung. The Beatles, All You Need Is Love, became a rallying cry around the world amidst the Vietnam War and the heightened tensions of the Cold War. Whitney Houston's And I Will Always Love You captured the hearts and minds of romantics everywhere. More recently, Rihanna's We Found Love in a Hopeless Place described the mystery of love. And Ed Sheeran's song, Perfect, in addition to having 2.5 billion views on YouTube, has been played at virtually every wedding reception since it debuted in 2017. Because we were just kids when we fell in love. Not knowing what it was, I will not give you up this time. Darling, just kiss me slow. Your heart is all I own, and in your eyes, you're holding mine. Love has also been the rallying cry politically, choose love, not hate, which has been the unofficial slogan for the LGBTQ movement for much of the past decade. And even when in the broader church we see ideas and books such as Love Wins, which attempt to erase the reality of hell based on this idea that love conquers all. So, friends, what is love? There are some words in the English language that are so familiar, so known, that defining them is actually a rather difficult proposition. And love can be one of those words, one of those ideas, one of those concepts, one of those feelings that seemingly need no definition. You just know it when you see it. So what is love according to much of the world around us? Not necessarily the scriptures, but what would the world have us believe that love is? A few of my personal observations. Number one, the world around us would say that love is a feeling that I get. 
We've all heard it before. They fell in love at first sight. He or she is my one true love. I can't explain it. I can't describe it. We fell in love. In November 2017, the magazine Cosmopolitan, which I do not subscribe to, asked 17 women in their 20s how to describe what it feels like to be in love. Brianna, age 28, says, Being in love feels like babysitting a baby kitten. It's so adorable and fun and exciting, and you just want to love it and squeeze it every second of every minute of every day. Genesis, age 23, says, Being in love feels like being lost in the right direction. It just feels right. Love is a feeling. Number two, the world would say that love is unconditional affirmation. This is the crux of the LGBTQ movement. To say that marriage is only between one man and one woman is not loving. To say that a person who is born biologically male but now identifies as female, to say that that person is still male is unloving. Love is about unconditional affirmation, according to many around us. Lindsay, age 28, says this in the same article, Being in love is freedom to feel safe in your own skin. Madison, age 23, says, Love isn't a feeling of bliss or constant butterflies, but rather a feeling that no matter what happens, you have your significant other next to you every step of the way with unconditional support. Number three, the world would tell us that love is temporary. Love is temporary. While no one in the magazine article would describe love this way, unfortunately, we see it all the time. We can fall into and out of love at any moment. Today in America, every state legally permits no-fault divorces, which permits the dissolution of a marriage without demonstrating wrongdoing by any party. Simply falling out of love is reason enough. The world around us would tell us that love is a feeling that we get, it's unconditional affirmation, and that it is temporary. But what do the scriptures teach us about love? What does the Bible say about love? For the purposes of our study here tonight, we're going to primarily be concentrating on love as a fruit of the Spirit, given our text. But we cannot understand what love is without understanding God's great love for us. But most of our time will be spent on our love for God and our love for others. The world around us tells us love is a feeling, love is unconditional affirmation, and love is temporary. But the scriptures paint a very different picture of love for us. The scriptures certainly include our feelings and our emotions in love, but love is much more than that. Love isn't simply emotive in the scriptures. Love is covenantal. Love isn't subjective, it's rooted in the objective work of Christ on the cross. Psalm 89, 28. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand for him. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. Just one chapter prior in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, chapter 5, Moses relays to us the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. One of my seminary professors here at RTS used to say, to the Western mind, 
The heart is the seat of emotion. But to the Hebrew, the heart included his entire being. The heart is who you are. So friends, we're not just called to love with our emotions. We're called to love with our whole being because of God's covenant love for us. Love isn't simply based on our feelings. It's based on his covenant with us. It involves our head, our heart, and our hands. Second, the world would tell us that love is unconditional affirmation. The Bible, on the other hand, tells us that love is costly. John 15, 12 through 13, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Love isn't about unconditional affirmation and support. Love isn't about accepting me for who I am according to the scriptures. Love is costly. Love is sacrificial. Love doesn't demand first and foremost. Love gives. And we know that there's no greater picture of this than the love of God for us. Friends, we will never be able to know how to love others truly until we know the the love of God for us. It's a love of a father for his wandering children. It's a love of a husband for his long-awaited bride. It's a love that led our Savior to lay down his life for his friends. It's a love that changes us, that conforms us more and more into the image of Christ. No, love doesn't first demand. Love gives. Love isn't about unconditional affirmation of who I am. It's about costly sacrifice. Third, the world tells us that love is temporary. The Bible tells us that true love, biblical love, is eternal. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved us and demonstrated this love for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ that we, so that we could have a life of love with him forever. Book of Romans chapter 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, not even death, will be able to separate us from the love of God. Men and women may fall in and out of love, but not God. God will always love. He will always love his people. There's nothing in all of creation that can separate us from this love, including death. The world may say that love is temporary. It may demonstrate that love is temporary. But the scriptures would say that love, love is eternal. Ultimately, the Bible teaches us that God is love. Not that love is God, but that God is love. He is the one who defines love. And so every action he takes is love. John isn't saying that God is only love. No, we know that he's also holy. We also know that he's wise. He's gracious. He's eternal. He's unchanging. He's merciful. He's just. But to say that God is love means that he is the source and the full embodiment of what love means. If we want to know what love is, all we have to do is look to God. But tonight, our job isn't just to look at what love is. Specifically, our job is to examine love as a fruit of the Spirit. 
Love is costly. Love is covenantal. Love is eternal. But what is love day in and day out as a fruit of the Spirit within you and within me? And fortunately for us, love is one of the few um, fruits of the Spirit that's actually defined in the Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. If every wedding reception include Ed Sheeran's song, Perfect, every wedding ceremony probably includes a reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. What is love? Well, Paul says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Yes, love never ends. While we may hear these verses primarily read in wedding ceremonies, and rightfully so, there's nothing to suggest in this chapter that 1 Corinthians 13 is uniquely about marriage. If anything, these chapters would say that this is about the Spirit of God and work with us and the whole body of Christ relating to one another. Over the past year, Pastor Kevin has been leading the officers of the church through portions of a book called Leading with Love by Alexander Strack. And that book helps us to see what love is, what love isn't, and then what does love do. So what is the fruit of the Spirit? Two things love is. Eight things love isn't, five things love does, according to 1 Corinthians 13. What is the fruit of the Spirit love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love has a passive quality to it. It suffers long. It's patient. But it also has an active quality to it. It shows kindness. Brothers and sisters, you and I know what it means to be patient and kind. We don't need a deep exegesis to understand these qualities on the surface. Are we patient with our children? Are we kind to our spouse? Are we patient with other drivers in traffic? Are we kind to our coworkers that we interact with on a daily basis? Just think of the Apostle Paul, even as he wrote this letter to the Corinthians. The Corinthians had unjustly criticized him, but he didn't give up. He didn't cut them off. Paul wasn't vindictive against them. He didn't return evil for evil. No, he answered their criticism and he confronted their sin, but he did so in an ever-patient and an ever-kind manner. Friends, love is patient. And love is kind. Eight things that love isn't. Love is not envious. Love is not boastful. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love is not selfish. Love is not easily angered. Love is not unforgiving. Love is not joyful over wrongdoing. We don't have time to exhaustively look at each one of these eight negative qualities... And so I'll simply ask this, brothers and sisters, 
as we read over this list, as you hear this list read, is there anything that the Spirit of God might be convicting you over? Is it envy? Is it boastfulness? Are you arrogant or rude? Do you insist on your own way? Are you irritable or resentful? Do you take joy in wrongdoing? Brothers and sisters, these qualities are not compatible with love. Finally, five things that love does. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Five more active qualities of love. Strauch says that love bears up the heavy load of life's problems and sufferings. It holds steadfast and it remains strong despite opposition, deprivation, and hard work. Love is courageous. Love has full confidence and belief and hope in God's word. It never gives up. It doesn't give way to despair. It has faith in God's ultimate triumph in the end. Love gives a person the power to endure all things. Ultimately, Paul tells us that without love, what are we? Nothing, according to the first three verses. In the first three verses of this chapter, Paul tells us that we can have all ability, all power, all knowledge, all faith, even all sacrifice. But if we do not have love, we have Nothing. So, who are we to love? If you would, turn in your Bibles to the passage that Pastor Derek read. Familiar passage, the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, 25. Who are we to love? Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying... Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, that's Jesus, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Who are we to love? Oddly enough, the lawyer in Luke 10 gives us the correct answer. We are to love God and we're to love neighbor. First, let us look at loving God. The lawyer here in the passage is obviously well-versed in the scriptures. He knows the answer cold. You shall not just love God, but here's how you love God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. He's quoting a passage that we read earlier in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. The rabbinic teaching understood the Shema to be the heart of the Torah, the heart of the law. Indeed, this passage in Deuteronomy 6 is the heart of the entire Old Testament. Notice that Jesus indicates the lawyer is correct in asserting that we should love God and we should love our neighbor. But first and foremost, we are to love God. 1 John 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever has been born of God knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Friends, as Christians, there is nothing so important as our love for God. There are many concerns in our world today, but nothing should be as great of a concern as your love and my love for God. Calvin says this, God ought to be perfectly loved. And whatever power that we have as men should be devoted to this, loving God perfectly. As I mentioned earlier, to love God with all of your heart is to love him with your entire being. In the Hebrew, it's not just the seed of emotion. The heart is who you are. And so we are to love God with all of our soul. The Hebrew, the word for soul is nefesh, meaning breath. So with each and every breath we take, the aim of our lives is to love God. Deuteronomy 6.5 concludes by exhorting us to love God with all of our might. Again, the Hebrew word for might is mayad. It is used as a noun here in Deuteronomy 6, but in every other instance in the Old Testament, approximately 277 other times it's used as an adverb. So the text here, and the adverb means very or much. So the text here is literally telling us to love God with all of our veriness, to love God with all of our muchness. That is to love God with all that you are. The very essence of who you are as a person is called to love the Lord your God. So friends, brothers and sisters, this is not new information. But I have to stop and I have to ask, do we love God like this? With all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and with all of our strength, do we love God? Or friends, are we going through the motions? We know what it's like to come here, to watch Week in and week out. But brothers and sisters, do we love the Lord our God? Because the Bible is calling for an all-consuming vibrancy to our love. Do we love God like this? Because the reality is we have no ability to love our neighbors unless we first love God. Turning our attention back to Luke 10 we again see that the lawyer answers correctly. He knows that he should love God and that he should love his neighbor. Continuing on in verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you back when I come. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Today, maybe more than ever, I think there can be a great deal of legitimacy to the question, who is my neighbor? In a world in which you and I are more connected than ever, this can actually be a hard question to answer. Who is my neighbor? Clearly, those who live next door to me are my neighbors. But what about the person on the other side of town? What about the other families on my son's sports team? What about those people on the other side of the world that I read in the news? Through the internet and social media, you and I can be more connected to those people we've never encountered before. And the question of who is my neighbor can be actually a very legitimate question in this day and age. So let's look at this parable that Jesus shares to try and answer that question. Who is my neighbor? Who am I called to love? And how am I called to love them? Three things. Notice first, the Samaritan doesn't seem to know the injured man. Now, this is a parable. It's, it's not a documentary. But it's likely that Jesus' point was that the Samaritan who came across the injured man, they didn't know each other. He just comes across him on the road. If anything, we can be led to assume that it's far more likely that the priest or the Levite might have known the injured man. So who is my neighbor? Well, at least according to this parable, you don't necessarily have to know your neighbor to be someone's neighbor. Second, the injured man and the Samaritan were of different ethnic and religious backgrounds. We're led to assume that the injured man is a Jew and that it is a scandal that the Samaritan would help a Jew. We know the hostility and the contempt that these two groups had for one another. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Luke says this, the hatred, the hatred between Judea and Samaria went back over 400 years and were centered around racial purity. In Jesus' day, the hatred was ingrained and utterly implacable. The ultimate insult came in a Jewish prayer that concluded like this. Lord, please do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Add to this fact that some in Jesus' day, that some Jewish travelers had been murdered in Samaria, and that some Samaritans had defiled the temple with human bones, and you can begin to imagine the shock of Jesus introducing a Samaritan, not as a villain, but as a hero. Indeed, if the Jew in the story were not half dead, he probably would have pushed away the loathsome Samaritan. Jesus in this passage clearly states that your neighbor is not someone who's defined by racial, ethnic, or even someone in the religious or political sphere. These men were neighbors because in God's providence, they came into contact with one another on this day in this parable. And I think Jesus means to have us see our neighbors as something much broader than those who we live near. Your neighbor is the person you see in the grocery store. 
your fellow shopper, the clerk, the young man or woman who's bagging your groceries. Your neighbors are the people that you pass by on the highway or you're stuck in traffic with. Your neighbors are the people that you interact with on a daily basis. I think that in our world, our neighbors that we interact with online could be considered our neighbors. Yes, isn't social media a form of contact, a form of relationship? So is it that our social media friends or followers are in some ways our neighbors? That we are also called to love as Jesus commands us. Now does that mean that I have the responsibility to meet every single person, their needs on this planet? No, we're limited creatures. We can't do everything. We can't love everyone perfectly and fully. But I think the point here is to say those that we come in contact with, we're called to love. We're called to love our neighbor. And I think Jesus means to define who our neighbors are by something much broader than the person who lives next door to us. Third and most importantly, Jesus actually doesn't answer the question, who is my neighbor? He reframes the question. He doesn't so much address the question, who is my neighbor, though we did just speak to that, and it can be helpful to pull out a few principles. He rather defines the type of neighbor that you and I should be. Jesus doesn't answer the question, who do I not have to be a good neighbor to? Rather, he says, the question you should be asking is, who can I be a good neighbor to? The Samaritan didn't stop to think if he was required to love this injured Jewish man. He didn't stop to think, is this man my neighbor or not, or can I pass on by? No. The Samaritan came into contact with someone in need, and he loved him accordingly. Friends, the question is not, who do I have to be a good neighbor to? But rather, who can I be a good neighbor to? Jesus reframes the question. He's not so concerned about answering who is my neighbor as what type of neighbor are you and I to the person and the people that we come into contact with. So who can you love as your neighbor? We've looked at what the world says the, that love isn't. We've looked at what the scriptures would say that love is. We've also looked at who and how to love. So I want to leave us with a final word of application for us as a church. You and I are called to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. There's nothing higher that you and I could be called to. And we want to love our neighbors as ourselves. But in this day and age, June 2020, what might God specifically be pressing in on you and I as a church? What, he, what might he be calling us to? I brought us to Luke 10 because I think it has a lot of applications for us here in this specific moment in time. This has been quite a year. 2020 has brought us a global health crisis, a pandemic that has created an ever-growing rift between those that think that we should do X and those who think that we should do Y. 2020 has also brought us the tragedies of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and most recently, Rayshard Brooks. 
The aftermath of these tragedies have brought up a global uprising full of protesting that has been peaceful, but also full of rioting and looting that has not been peaceful. And so in this moment and this time, what might God have for us, Christ's covenant church? How might he be calling us to love? How might he be instructing, speaking us to love? Friends, my my task here tonight is not to preach on whether or not policing needs reform in this country. My task tonight has not been to preach on rioting or looting. My task tonight is not to preach on the merits of phase two of when it should be opened here in North Carolina, the reopening plan. I've been asked to preach on love. So that's where I want to push us and I want to challenge us. And I think the scriptures in this moment, in this time, when we read about the fruit of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 13, in Luke 10, I think they're asking us, do we love those who aren't like us? Specifically, as a church that is overwhelmingly of the majority culture, do we love men and women of different ethnicities, cultures, races, educational backgrounds, socioeconomic statuses, political ideologies? Do we love those who are not like us? Do I love those who are not like me? Do we love those that we come into contact with on a daily basis that are maybe from a different neighborhood, a different background, even a different religion? Do we love others as we ourselves want to be loved? Brothers and sisters, I think this is a valid question for us because of the world we live in. Pastor Kevin reminded us that Friday was Juneteenth, a date in which the final slaves in Galveston, Texas, were notified of President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, a date two and a half years after that initial proclamation of freedom. We live in a country that for 400 years, to varying degrees for sure, but has often treated men and women of non-white ethnicities as less than image bearers. Second, I think this is a valid question for us because of our Southern Presbyterian legacy. A few years ago at the PCA's 44th General Assembly in 2016, our entire denomination stated that it does recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of corporate and historical sins, including those committed during the civil rights era, and continuing racial sins of ourselves and our fathers, such as the segregation of worshipers by race, the exclusion of persons from church membership on the basis of race, the exclusion of churches or elders from membership in presbyteries on the basis of race, the teaching in the Bible that sanctions racial segregation and discourages interracial marriage. The participation in and defense of white supremacist organizations and the failure to live out the gospel imperative that love does no wrong to a neighbor. Sadly, Southern Presbyterians have a history of not loving our non-white neighbors as we would want to be loved ourselves. Third, I think this is a valid question for us here to ask at Christ Covenant Church, specifically this time and this place and this local body. 
To my knowledge, God has spared us graciously from many of the confessed national and denominational sins listed above as a church. But brothers and sisters, that does not mean that you and I have always loved others as we want to be loved. I've had the privilege of being on staff here at this church for 12 years. And just in that time, I I have known of African-American men and women who have left our church because of racially insensitive comments. I have had well-intending men and women approach me during worship when we have had an influx of college students with campus outreach worshiping with us, asking if, if those young people, specifically the black ones, belong here. I have had a, a black man who was working for this church tell me of a time when a fellow white staff member pretended to be held at gunpoint by him, the black staff member on this church's campus in front of dozens of his colleagues and friends. Brothers and sisters, I I, I hope and I pray and I believe that these are isolated incidents. I don't think they represent the heart of this church, but might they point to corporate examples of how we have not loved our fellow image bearers as the Lord Jesus would have us. So where can we start? I had a pastor friend tell me that in these confusing times, the one thing he wants to do is is to hide behind the Bible so that when he speaks, people are not confronted with his own opinions, but they're confronted with the word of God. And so in that spirit, I want to bring us back to 1 Corinthians 13. Where can you and I start? by loving others who are not like us. I think we can start by being patient and listening to the concerns of others, specifically our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ. We can listen to their experiences, their perspectives, their hurts, their pains. Before we act or before we respond, we can listen. We can do as the scriptures say, we can be patient. We can be kind in the way that we respond to people on social media. We can be kind in the way that we speak, in the way that we act. We can be charitable with our brothers and sisters in Christ who we may not see eye to eye with at all times. We can avoid being arrogant or rude by considering others as more important than ourselves. We can avoid being irritable or resentful with those that we disagree with. We can bear all things like the Good Samaritan. We can believe all things about the body of Christ. We can hope in all things that Jesus Christ would return and make all things new. We can endure all things in this troubled world. We can remember that the love of Christ on the cross, extended to us, never ends. Where should we start? We can start with love. Several weeks ago, Pastor Kevin wrote a blog post based on his podcast monologue addressing why these times are so difficult and maybe what we can do. And he ends it by calling us to love. Kevin said this, I know that it sounds like I'm doing a Beatles song 
All you need is love. But look, don't let the world steal that word from the church. If we as Christians get to a point where we are embarrassed to say that love is what we need to do, then we've missed what it means to be a Christian. Brothers and sisters, I don't know much in these uncertain times. But I do know that God is calling us to love. Calling us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And our neighbor as ourselves. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, who are we that, that you should love us? We have broken your law time and time again. We have not loved you as we ought. We have not loved our neighbors as we ought, and yet you still love us. Who are we that we should be loved by God? So Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us strength, that you would give us your spirit, that we would not just try harder at loving, but it would be a genuine fruit of the Spirit. God, your Spirit would fill us to love others and to love you. Help us now as a church to love those not like us. Certainly to love those like us, but maybe uniquely in this time and this season to shine a light in places in which we do not love others as we ought to, as we ourselves want to. We thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.